Good morning. Got four more Sundays with you, including today, so you'll get back eventually to normal-sized scripture passages. But not today. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We again ask that you would show us who you are, teach us what you've done, and empower us to live as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house? Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is, was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you 
according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And you, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servants, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. There's a system that we have in place in our part of the Church of Christ to assess readiness for church planting. And it's a three-day set of exercises and reviews and counseling and all, all manner of stuff. And one of the exercises is a true story um, about a church plant just outside of New York City that was one of the early church plants in the history of, of, a, of a church called Redeemer, or one of the early parts of that, of that movement. Uh, there were some families that went into Manhattan to go to church from, I don't know, way out where the beautiful people live, I guess. And um, they wanted a church like that. They weren't really sponsored by Redeemer, but that's what they wanted. So they, uh, they started looking around for a pastor to plant a church for them, and they found a guy. And then the, the leader of this community, that small community of people, that wanted a church plant, uh, he thought it would be a super good idea since it was really expensive to live there if he just bought a house for the planter and his family. So he just bought a house for the planter of his family and then, and then the order is important, and then he told them that he bought a house. And he told them what house he bought. And the whole exercise is, if that happened to you, would you go and take that job? And the right answer is no. That's not how the kingdom gets built. And it didn't go well there. Because uh, it turns out that if you buy the guy a super expensive house, you sort of expect the guy to work for you. Who would have thought that? Who would have imagined such a thing. Well, if God has left the building of his kingdom up to us, which he hasn't, um, we might expect him to do as we tell him to, but he won't. Because God is building a house for us, and that changes everything. 
God will build his house and he will bring us home. And that's our great comfort and promise. And we're going to look at the builder. We're going to look at the builder's son. And we're going to look at what it's like to live at home with God. So let's begin where David began with uh, his faithful aspirations. Um, The first part is the builder. Who's going to be the builder? Well, David, uh, with an instinct that we could understand, is admirable even, with a sort of dissonance that he's got this very nice place and God's in a tent. Um, That's understandable. The timing, as we've been watching him build his kingdom, is also predictable. Everything makes sense about this. David's instinct to build a place for God is understandable and uh, admirable and perfectly timed. And it's also not going to happen. In fact, it's so perfectly timed that, that Nathan, who's a pretty sharp guy, Nathan, he's just been with David for all this time and he's like, he's done a little math. God is with this man. So David decides to do a godly thing, right? I want to build a temple for the God who's blessed me and my people. And Nathan instinctively says, go for it. The Lord is with you. You do whatever is in your heart. And there's a lesson here for us that, especially for American Christians, that just because we can doesn't mean we should. We're not very good at calculating the math of God's providence. He's done this. He's granted me that. Therefore, I have the power to accomplish some great mission or do some wonderful deed. But the problem with David and the problem with us is David didn't understand the significance, the magnitude of the task that he had declared himself committed to. And that's what I want us to understand about what it means to build God's kingdom on earth, what it means to establish a local congregation, which is part of the whole network, the whole community of worshiping assemblies in the global church. What, what does it mean to be part of the global church? And what we must understand is what is embedded in David's word and later de- in David's request and later declared by the prophet that um, this just beyond our reach. David says uh, something significant. He says, um, the Lord has given me rest from all my surrounding enemies, and I'm living in this tricked-out cedar house. By the way, that was the kind of house to have back then. Cedar. You wanted a cedar house. So he had this nice house built, established, permanent, and and he had rest, and he wanted to give rest back to who? He wanted to help God get a little rest. Well, that that's, should be the first clue about, about how uh, David may have been swept up in the vortex of his own momentum. That, that he thought it was somehow our job, his job, his calling to give rest to God. Well, the language of rest is significant in the Bible. The, the Bible begins with rest. It's a different word here um, than here. This is uh, a word we'll see in just a moment with a different emphasis, but The idea of Sabbath rest, that's what God, God made the world and then the world rested. God created rest for us. We don't create peace and shalom and rest for God. Now, what's important about the word David uses is that it's later on used in the the Ten Commandments when 
we're told that God rested on the Sabbath. And the idea here is that the word that David uses is about reestablishing rest that's lost. It's about restoring um, rest that was disrupted. And David is saying that after all this turmoil, after all this disruption, after all this failure in the kingdom, um, I'm going to be the one that restabilizes the spiritual ecosystem that we're in, that brings us back to to um, a benevolence status, benevolence stasis. Now, I think this is particularly important for us because you may have noticed that in so many ways, uh, the church in the West globally, certainly in North America, certainly in the United States, is um, having some troubles. We've... Um, We've been in a season of disruption, a season of declension, uh, a season of uncertainty. I became a Christian uh, in the 70s, and then that didn't really stick, so I did it again in the 80s. By the way, you only do that once, but I'm just telling you what my life experience felt like. Um, And uh, I never imagined at that time the church was setting the cultural table. We we, We decided what was for dinner. And we decided who got invited to it. And we didn't do a great, a great job at it. We, did, we didn't do everything wrong. But I never would have thought that all these years, 40 years later, um, we would be standing outside wondering if we're even invited to the cultural dinner and have a space in um, the public square. And it's easy to long for a reestablishment of our place, and I want to say that that's not our job. In fact, I'm very hopeful for the church, and that's not because I think that the church is going to turn the corner and not be in a season of disrupted declension for a while. It's because I think God's going to work in that and take the peace that we've built away so that he might establish his own. Listen to this. They shall, Isaiah says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Those are things God does. God brings peace. It's his job to establish a home for his people. Because what David is asking is to undo what sin has done. When was the last time that God was dwelling with his people in Shalom? It was before our first parents fell. The Garden of Eden. David is, what David is saying is he's going to remake Eden on Mount Zion. He's going to reestablish rest, just like he has rest. That's above our pay grade. That's beyond our reach. We're not smart enough to do that. We're not strong enough to do that. We can't make that happen again. It's, it's really the theme of Scripture is that God is going to do this. He, he made a place with abundant provision and peace in Eden, um, 
And then he gave us the promised land to his people Israel, flowing with milk and honey. And then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. This is the thing that God restores, that God builds, that God does. You notice the whole Bible's about eating. Eden was about food. <laughs> the promised land is about food. And the new heavens and the new earth are about a big feast. That's how we rest. We can't do that. I, I had a brief stint. I've had a number of jobs. And one of my jobs, I worked at a jewelry store. And you didn't know this, but uh, there are Windex specialists at jewelry stores. And uh, our job, our job is after you go like this, okay, then I come along and I clean off your fingerprints. So one day, somebody, everybody was busy and somebody wanted to see a, a loose diamond in uh, one of the cases. And I'd been there about four months and I thought, I'm, I'm ready for the loose diamond thing. I'm ready for this. I got these things. I got these glass cases sparkling like a diamond. So he put it up there and we, we got it out. I, was, I had no business doing this. I had I'd been told not to do this. And so there's these little tweezers. Have you ever bought a loose diamond? They use these little tweezers. You know, these little, they're not little actually. They're diamond tweezers. And they look really easy. Well, I found out they're not really easy. Because there's this little tiny edge on the diamond. you got to get it just right. And I kept fumbling the diamond and knocking it over. And, and finally, this, the nicest guy in the world, thankfully, with his wife, was trying to buy a diamond. And, and finally... He just says, hey, excuse me, um, why, don't you, why don't you find someone else to help us? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think I'll probably do that. And because uh, there's some fingerprints over there that are really bad. Uh, and I just feel like so much of my ministry has been that same thing, like overreaching, trying to accomplish and achieve, trying to bring trying to bring peace to my neighborhood, my city, the world, trying to, for the flock that I'm in. But, but what David finds out is, is uh, not only that his aspirations were misplaced, that, that um, it was just beyond him, but, but then he's reminded, not subtly, that, that God never asked him to do that. In fact, God never asked anybody to do that. You know, the analogy with me is like, I was literally asked not to do that. Listen to what I have not lived, and I want you to hear all the first person, the eyes and the me's in this. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about. I have been wandering, he says, with them in a tent for my dwelling in this temporary place um, the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word um, to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? concept of shepherding is an is a, is a, um, image of open pastures, saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Throughout this whole passage, throughout the whole course of, of redemption, God is the doer. He enters in. He wanders with us. He goes into the disequilibrium and the brokenness, the dysfunction and the pain, the sorrow, the evil of the world. God comes to us. You know, the, 
the, the incarnation is a profound uh, mystery. But what we could add to that mystery is its inevitability. What happened when our first parents sinned? Who came to them? God came to them. God came to them in Egypt. God came to them in the promised land. God has always been coming. He's always been with us. He's always been the doer. He's never asked you or me to establish his kingdom on earth. He'll use us. But he'll never ask us to build his house. He says here in this passage, um, he will wander with us. And then he goes on to say that he will settle us. What we, what we see in these next set of verses is that all the first person stuff that I just read, that's all God saying, look what I did. Look what I've done. I redeemed you out of Egypt. I wandered with you. I dwelled in the tent. I never asked you to make a safe place, a full place, an honorable place for me. I never did any of that. And then he goes on to say um, some other things about the future. When your days are fulfilled, he says to David, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring. And I will establish your kingdom. And your son will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him by my steadfast love. And there's what we live. There's where we live in. We, we always live looking back at all God's first person acts of grace and faithfulness and then we look ahead to God's promises. And then we get out of the way. My son Luke, as I've mentioned, was in the infantry in the Marines. And um, he did a lot of marching, a lot of walking. He had anywhere, depending. He was a mortarman, so they would have to carry their plates and their mortars and everything else. And three-man per- three crew, and they'd have anywhere from 90 to 120 pounds on their back. And they'd just walk forever because turns out the Marines don't care how long you walk. And Luke is pretty sure, he he knows it doesn't make sense, even in his own head, but he's pretty sure that he has fallen asleep while he walked. (laughs) He said, what he does know is that he certainly spent uh, a click or two um, not really uh, being cognitively aware of the environment around him. Whether it was sleep or, you know, a vision or the third heaven or whatever Paul says, he doesn't know. But he does know that there, there is a way to work and find rest at the same time. Um, and that's somewhere in the space that, that we need, uh, need to be. So I want to take a brief look at about how God's son, because all throughout this passage, um, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, David, there was a king, Saul, and he messed up, and then David became a, a faithful king after God's own heart. 
And then the king after David, his son Solomon, would build the temple. And in a fashion, uh, as, a, as a picture or a type of, of Jesus, Solomon is the, um, Solomon is, is the son that's going to build this temple. But he's really just a picture of, of Jesus who truly um, and really built this temple. What do we know about this Jesus who walked with us? Well, first of all, we know that he wandered with us. You might have heard before that um, when one of the Gospels says that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, the word for lived among us is tabernacled. He came into a tent and he lived with us. Just reflecting this language that God just used. He came and he walked through Galilee in a place called the Decapolis, these ten cities. He um, went to Jerusalem. He even went to the Golgotha with us. He was a wanderer. One of my favorite passages in Matthew. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is what did not happen. When he saw the crowds, he, he did not say, why haven't you built a place for me to rest? When he saw the crowds, he saw that we were harassed and we were helpless and we were without rest. And so like his father, he protected us from our enemies. He gathered us under his wings. He delivered us from temptation. He shielded us from the wrath of God. He laid his life down for his sheep. He gave us rest. He gave us rest. You might remember, if you're familiar with another one of the Gospels, that Jesus said, I will build my church. I will establish it. Now that's um, hard for us to see, especially when we live in the part of the world in the age that we, um, where we where we watch the church, especially along the coast and in the west, uh, become increasingly marginalized. It, it's hard to see that this house is getting built. I was. Watching, um, I think, a British documentary about an archaeologist from Germany who went to study uh, in the Amazon about 25 years ago because he knew that there was something there. He hoped that there was something there, but all of his archaeology buddies were like, bro, this is how they talk in conferences. They said, bro, there's like nothing there. You know, there's no agriculture. There, there is in Bolivia. There, there's no um, monuments. They found some piles, what they think are basically refuse piles, trash piles that are ancient. And there, there's nothing there. So he just kept working, found a few things. But you know what? I don't know what LIDAR is, except that it's cool. But what they did was they then took this uh, 
helicopter and they shot infrared down onto the jungle. And the cool thing about it is they read all the signals that come back and they get a computer readout and they can erase, digitally erase the whole forest. And they see, and what do they find down there? But very substantial remnants of established cities and civilizations. Massive. Scores of them. Towers and homes. And they found a a whole world in the midst of the jungle. So now this guy's looking like kind of a big deal. And he said, uh, you know, he said, I'm getting ready to retire, but you know, you know, basically his message was, I'll take this as my life's work, found a new civilization. That's pretty good. If, I got a feeling if you're an archaeologist, that's a pretty good deal. You need to learn to see. You need to learn to look through the jungle and the forest, and you will see God building this temple this kingdom, his own house, now manifested in the presence of the church. And David can teach us how to do that. And the first thing I want us to see about how to live in this house, after we've seen that the builder and the builder's son make it, the the first one you're already doing right now, by the way, and I don't mean you're worshiping or listening to a sermon, I mean you're sitting down. So just drink that in. You're like, this is the easiest sermon application I've ever been given. Because what we find is that then King David went in after he heard from Nathan and sat before the Lord. Well, that's quite a remarkable thing to do in Israel. In fact, the only other person ever said to have sat in the presence of God is guess who? Our Lord Jesus, the son of David. So David, his first response is to go to the temple of God and rest. The priest never sat in the temple of God before his presence But David comes in, he got the message. It's like God has given us rest. This is what Isaiah 30 says. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we'll flee on horses, therefore we will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, and the threat of five you will all flee away to your left like a flagstaff on a mountain, like a banner on a hill, like a church that's afraid, trying to make the world right trying to say the right things, do the right things, have the right arguments, engage the right battles. But but what if we, before we engage the mission of God, sat and understood that God is going to do his mission just fine? Have you ever had your house remodeled or part of it? 
and thought to yourself halfway through, worst decision ever. Yeah. Again, these, this is not, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but there's a remodeling going on. And no one likes to live in the middle of a remodeled house. At least I had this advantage. I have zero remodeling skills. I was never tempted to help the guys remodel my house. If you're a tool person, well, then you might have been. You know, someone could steal all the tools in my garage. They could have stolen them last night. And I probably wouldn't even notice till September. And then I might have to spend maybe $200 to replace them. I'm losing a lot of credibility here in Boise, aren't I? But we could probably lose our tools, at least lose our tenacity about rebuilding, and first just rest and then reflect. David says a couple of times in this passage what you and I should say, Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I to belong to the house of your son? We want so much from God. We want want our salvation. We want his promises. We want his spirit. And and while you're at it, God, can, can I have the country that I want and the neighborhood that I want and the politicians that I want and the laws that I want? Well, there's good reasons to want righteous laws. But why don't we start with just like, who am I? Meditate on the reality that that you and I deserved nothing at all. Even our breath. Much less our coffee this morning from God. We deserve nothing. Every time you breathe, every time you taste something, every time you look at someone you love or someone you love looks at you, every time you see the sky, every time you have a peaceful moment in your neighborhood, you and I, we should all say, well, who am I? For sinners, that's all gravy. That's all grace. That's all kindness. David sat and said, who am I? So, rest, reflect, and then relearn. There's one more R coming. But right now I want us to relearn. David says something remarkable. There's a lot of, like, him sitting down is really a spectacular sort of passive image. It's not flashy, but when you think about it, don't sit down, you know. Nobody walks into a king and just, like, sits down next to him and says, what's up? David didn't say what's up. He said some other stuff. But the point is, he sits down, and then he says this to God. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also to your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. Now, okay, so get ready to be instructed. Um, what, What he's saying is, this is your custom for humanity. This We could say this is your curriculum, your agenda, your business plan. 
This is how you're going to deal with us. You're going to bring peace to earth in your way, in your time, by your power. And the significance of that is that David used a word that you might be aware of, or it will sound familiar to many of you. He says, and this is your Torah with mankind. Your instruction, that's a good translation. Also your law, your way, your covenant, your purpose, your intention. This is how God is going to deal with us. According to your own heart. That's the foundation of everything. If you're exploring Christianity, you're you're hearing the whole story in one scene. That we can't build a place for God. We can't find our way back to God. We can't make rest in the world. But God never asked us to. He asked us to believe his way, his curriculum, his Torah, his, as David says, the promise of his own heart to do us good. And if we do that, if we, if we rest and reflect and relearn, then we can recapture the one thing that the church is increasingly losing in our despair, we can rejoice. Nothing more unbecoming than cynical, whiny Christians. Especially if they're pastors. David says, O Lord God, Over and over, I think eight times he says it in this passage. Oh, Lord God. That's like the Hebrew for whoa, wow. Be amazed. Use your spiritual LIDAR and watch the world around you. Consider what you deserve. Consider how God is going to work with humanity. Sit down and say, wow. It'll be okay. The gates of hell won't prevail. Rest on earth is not up to you and me. The restoration of shalom, the establishment of the uh, church in Boise and the Northwest and all over the world, that's not on us. Although we think it is. Our network is planted about, we're working, we're over just over 20 churches now. And when one of the first churches, the, the first church, I think, as I remember it, we've had about four that didn't work. Um, the 20 or so have worked. Well, we had one that was obviously not working. And uh, I was deeply burdened by it. And I was trying to figure out how to fix it, how to make it right. You know, what were we going to do? What's the new plan? How much longer? You know, it was so desperate. We were even thinking about praying. The, um, I was asleep one night and I woke up in the wee hours of the morning 
not in panic, but in, in like energized anxiety over this church plant. And so I immediately started to pray for the church plant. And um, I was deeply impressed, not by a voice, but by a message. Stop. So I stopped. And then I was impressed with this. You're not anxious because of my honor or this planter and his family. You just don't want to fail and explain it. The voice was right, and I was rebuked. You know, I am, as I've mentioned, a professional Christian. I do this for a living. I've given my life to planting churches, and right in the heart of it, I lost the instruction of how God is going to bring everything good about He'll do it. Let's just sit and watch. I bless you, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your kindness. You surely have work for us to do in your kingdom. You've called us to it. But may it be a kind of work that we could always do in a fashion while our soul is seated, resting in the presence of the one who has done so much and promised so much more and whose um, son himself, our Savior, will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.